2008 Sunday morning. We're going to do lots of things this morning. Our message is called Paid to Play. I got to watch football games all day yesterday, uh, which is not normal for me. My little boys did exceptionally well. That was always fun to see. And uh, then came home to see a bunch of LSU fans crowded around their TV sets watching LSU win. And it occurred to me that there are people that are paid to play a child's game, right? And on one level, that's almost insulting that you can make millions of dollars playing a child's game. On the other, there is something beautiful about being paid to do what you love to do. Anybody ever have a job that even if they didn't pay you, you would go to work? Very few people. We could say that that is a blessed calling. One time Fred asked me about one of my jobs. He said, how's it going? I said, it is going wonderful. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't do very much at all, and they pay me a lot. He smiled with the wisdom God has given me. He said, that's the kind of job you want to keep. <laughs> and he was right. So turn with me to Exodus, the first chapter. We're going to dedicate today Emmy Angel Piro to the Lord, and uh, we're going to do that at the end of the service. I want to teach you some things beforehand uh, that I'm hoping will be a blessing to you. There'll be kind of an overview of the plan of God from the book of Exodus, and then uh, we'll get into very specific things about raising our children. Tell me, are you in the first chapter of Exodus? Good. Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear and they begin discussing something with Jesus? They were discussing His upcoming Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we find some beautiful, beautiful things. But one of the most powerful is that the book of Exodus, even in the very first few chapters, really contains the entire plan of God through the ministry of shadow and type. See, because all of the plan of God has to do with God's people becoming captive and needing to be released. Sometimes this is obvious and easy to see because there's a chain around your neck. Other times it's not so obvious and easy to see because it's a chain around some area of your life. But God's people are in need of great deliverance and thus in need of a great deliverer. So in Exodus 1, I want to begin to read to you. And uh, I want to tell you that there is no such book in the Hebrew Bible as Exodus. I mean, there is, but there's not. There's no title, Exodus. The title is, These the Names. And the reason that that is the title is the first few words of the book, because ultimately this is not some arbitrary story with a mythical title. This is the story of real people and real events, and the story begins with their names. These are the names of the sons of Israel, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Aphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. The plan of God begins with men and their families. And the reason that it begins with men and their families is because the family is the building block for everything that God does on the earth. Isn't it an interesting way to say a blessing? To say, among those born of a woman, nobody was ever greater than John the Baptist? So, what does that mean? Is there a guy out there somewhere that was not born of a woman? 
Even Jesus was born a woman. So why say it that way? It's because it's speaking of those who have come out of families. God instituted the family in the very beginning for a reason. He realized it was not good that a man was alone and presented him with a helper. And among those two who would function as one unit, they could bring children into the world. And when they did that, God knew that He would have a powerful means of reproducing Himself. In fact, God's plan was that He would take these people who looked like Him and were functioning like Him, although each one was a little bit incomplete on their own, when you put them together as a whole, it looked and functioned like God, and He would fill the earth with His presence in this way. It's funny, if you've ever been to... Certain kinds of family reunions, you get everybody together and you don't feel like God's presence is functioning among them. In fact, you might feel God's presence more when you're alone. But this was not the way God intended it to be. He intended that one household would spring out of another duplicating itself. Just like an olive tree produces little olive shoots. They're independent trees, and yet they all have a similar root system. God designed the creation to work in this way. So read with me. It says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. What an interesting choice of words, filled with them, since Genesis 1.28 tells mankind, I want you to go forth and fill the earth and subdue it. In the very beginning of the story of mankind, God puts him here, shows him where his weaknesses are, adds to him a helper so that together they can function like God and reproduce godly offspring, and says, I want you to go forth and fill the earth with your presence. And while you do that, implying some kind of resistance. God begins the story of the deliverance of His people, His nation, by saying all the men and their families were there. And they had filled Egypt with their presence. This meant that in them, if they're functioning as God called them to be, God's presence was all over Egypt. How funny it is that God always shows up in a manner of working that is easily missed to the casual observer. To some, Jesus just looked like a Jewish carpenter. To others, maybe a holy man or a prophet, but certainly not the Son of God. And which of the prophets did they receive as prophets? The ones people sold them to or threw in pits? It never works that way. Well, who would believe that God's method or function of raising Emmy Angel Piro into all that God called her to be is through two regular old parents? It's kind of a surprising thing. We don't expect somebody great to come from humble origins, do we? In fact, every once in a while you hear a story about it and you kind of like it to hear that the world... In fact, I went to Mexico with a young man in this church and he was playing soccer with the kids. And one of the things he commented on I just thought was a keen observation. He said, wow, out there in that garbage dump, it could be one of the world's greatest soccer players. And we like those kind of stories where somebody comes from nothing and exalted is exalted to a place of position. This is exactly what the Bible is about. Children born in seemingly ordinary ways, but under extraordinary circumstances. 
that are raised by loving, godly parents to do supernatural things. Well, the book of Exodus starts no differently than that. They have filled Egypt. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Another way to say that is a king who didn't recognize Joseph's authority. At this time, we have something very similar to what's happened on this continent. At one point, there were people living here who uh, were the native people living in North America. And then they were displaced by Indo-Europeans who called themselves Americans. But Americans are not the original inhabitants of North America. The same thing happens in Egypt. There were natives that you could call Egyptians, but they were displaced by a group of people called the Hyksos, who then began called Egyptians. This is how somebody comes into power that does not know who Joseph is, and yet it's Egypt. Have you ever wondered about that? What's interesting about that is that this world belongs to God. An invading group, or let's just say an invading force, is acting as if it is theirs and as if they are the natives. Most of the Bible is about reclaiming what God has said is ours. This is why the story of God's people begins in this way and then moves on to take the land that God says they already possess from people who believe they own it. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came into power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us and leaves our country. It is very shrewd that an oppressor says, we need to do whatever we can to make sure people don't realize what they are really called for. Because if they understand the power that they have, if they really knew that they outnumber us as far as strength and military ability, if they really understood that they had the ability to make war with us, they would be numerous for us. Come on, preach to anybody in here. The reason the church is weak and emaciated is because it does not know that it is filled with strength and power. The reason the church has tried to lull us into a sense of false security in wealth in the things that we have or the things we think we need is so that we don't realize we're supposed to be at war with Him. In fact, we carry on every day passing by people, going to stores, doing things, going about our daily business without realizing that there is a war that is raging and people are dying. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Correct myself. I get better as I go. I'm learning. Somebody cut me off in traffic. My very first thought is, what an idiot rather than, my God, there's another person who is in such a hurry they're missing life. There's a war going on and they don't know it. See, we don't have spiritual eyes all the time like we should have. But the more we learn, the more we understand, the more we seek God's face, the more we begin to realize that war is breaking out and we are more numerous than our enemy believes. Many times have you heard some pious Hollywood director say that the Christians don't amount to enough of an audience to affect their movie sales. Does that make you angry? It makes me angry too. 
You know when they'll realize that we're too numerous for them? When we live the lives God has called us to live. Keep your finger in Exodus. Go with me to Jeremiah 51. The devil has worked to make sure that we don't understand who we are and what we are called to. Because when a God of the Hebrews speaks to His people and grafts us into those promises and says something like this next statement, if you believe what He says, how many of you could believe that you were an NFL football player but never touch a football You could believe that you were a fireman or a firefighter and never have seen a fire hose or ridden in a fire truck. But if you believe that you're destined to be any one of those things, you will spend all of your time hanging around footballs and fire hoses trying to become what God has called you to be. Well, listen to what God said to His people. This is Jeremiah 51, starting in verse 20. You are my war club, weapon for battle. With you, I shatter nations. With you, I destroy kingdoms. With you, I shatter horse and rider. And with you, I shatter chariot and driver. With you, I shatter man and woman. With you, I shatter old man and youth. With you, I shatter young man and maiden. With you, I shatter shepherd and flock. With you, I shatter farmer and oxen. With you, I shatter governors and officials. Our God speaks to His people. And He says, you have been numerous and you have filled the land. Now it's time to become what you were called to be. The oppressor realizes this. He says, we need to do something. If they keep multiplying like this, if one family keeps raising up godly children and it goes on like this, there will be no stopping them. When they realize who they are and they stand up and make war with us, surely lose. You might even say they would know their time was short, as Revelation 12 does. The devil has an answer for keeping you in a position so that you do not realize that you're at war in who you are. Come, we must deal shrewdly. This is verse 10 of Exodus 1. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. <laughs> Before I get to the enemy's tactics, I want to tell you I have no intention of leaving the country. I have every intention of claiming it as mine. See, you thought that what they had at stake here was some slave labor and that they might lose their slave labor. But ultimately, God inherits all of Egypt through His people as well. Abraham becomes the heir of the world. But back to their tactics. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and forced with forced labor. And they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Romans 6. You're going to be in Exodus all day, but we're going to turn to accompanying books. Good man. Who else is there? Where are you?
When the enemy has realized the people of God have the ability to multiply themselves, they will fill the earth. What was the next part of the command? Fill the earth and subdue it. If they fill the earth, they may begin to subdue it. He says, wait, wait, we got to stop it. Right now, we're going to stop it. We're going to keep them from multiplying. And we're going to put such hard labor upon them that they are not able to subdue the enemies of God. Well, I don't know about you, but nobody has shackled my neck in this country that hasn't happened for hundreds of years. So in what way could God's people be forced to hard labor now. Look with me at Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer, that we should no longer like sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The devil has worked to keep his people, to keep God's people, under his thumb through guilt and shame and slavish, habitual devotion to things that are not of God. And the longer he can do this, it's like forced labor. It bends your back down and your eyes upon the ground so that you cannot raise your eyes towards heaven and see that your deliverer draws near. What happens is it puts your eyes in your life upon your circumstances. And you see no hope. And this has been so effective that the vast majority of people that call themselves by the name Israel, Prince with God, or Christian, Christ-like, are in actuality slaves. And Jesus has done something so that we can live as slaves no longer. Look at verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Dare I say that every rebellion starts with someone who says, No. I was a teenager living in my father's house. A good father who loved me very much who only wanted what was best for me. The height of my rebellion started with one word. He made a request for my car keys, and I looked him in the eye and said, no. He's a good father, so he put down that rebellion quite soundly and quickly. All rebellions start with the word no. Saints, sometimes we need to look around us and say, God's desire is that my life multiply that it multiply in other people. God's desire is that we fill the creation with His goodness through us. And the devil is trying to force us into a place where our backs are bent, our labor is hard, and our joy is gone. And sometimes we just have to stand to our feet and say, No! And when and how does that happen? It happens in that moment that you're in the valley of decision. 
when you're trying to decide to do the good that you know you should do, or trying to decide not to do the bad that you know you shouldn't do. Sometimes we have to stand to our feet and say, no, I am a slave no longer. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Let me give you the King Eric translation. Do not be the devil's puppet. Have you ever considered that the words that felt so good to come out of your mouth in actuality just made you a megaphone for a lying chihuahua that thinks he's a lion? the action that felt so good to retaliate, instead of rebelling and saying no to your earthly nature, no to the devil, no to the powers of this world, the thing that we submitted to that we thought would feel so good, in actuality just made us the devil's pawn. I am a hard-headed man. When I want to put that in a positive light, say that I'm persistent. Those of you who know me, know that in actuality I am extremely stubborn. But there's one thing that I never liked the idea of. I didn't want to give anybody my lunch money, and I didn't want anyone to control me in any way. Part of realizing who I am and who you are called to be and what we are called to be in the kingdom is realizing that we are slaves to whoever we present ourselves as servants. We cannot offer our bodies, our minds, our emotions to sin and think we are not slaves to it. Let us wise up. The devil has put us in these positions to keep us from joining with an invading force that God calls His light in taking back the planet. I think I need not read the rest of Romans 6, but you should read all the way till the 18th verse sometime. It will bless you. Find your way back to Exodus, my friends. Slaves no longer. By the way, the way that you defeat oppression, oppression is an outside force that is pushing upon you. You defeat oppression through submission. It doesn't sound like that could be the case. How could I resist something pressing on me by submitting? I'm not talking about submitting to it. I'm talking about submitting to God. All rebellion, and in this case we're talking about the enemy's rebellion, not our rebelling against the devil, is crushed by submission. In fact, if you have a classroom full of disobedient children and they are all in one accord being disobedient, the teacher has very little control or recourse. But as soon as one or two stand up and say, no, I will not act like this, you suddenly have something to work with. To the tune that Paul says in Corinthians, once all of you have come into, or the majority of you have come into obedience, we will deal with the rest. And commentators don't seem to know what he meant. I know exactly what he means. If your whole church is being disobedient to a teaching, what you need is five who have the courage to be righteous as an example to the other 95. And then there's something to work with. God is looking for something to work with among us today. Oppression is cured through submission. Let us look at Exodus 
1, starting in verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. How many of you like to be used? Then we cannot submit to the powers of this world because that's exactly what they're doing, is using us. Verse 12 said, but the more they were oppressed, but the more they were oppressed, they multiplied. What an interesting concept that is. There are cultures in the world that bind their feet because everybody knows a very tiny foot is a super attractive thing, right? I have no idea. There are other cultures in the world that deform their bodies by stretching their necks. There are these strange American cultures that pierce their ears and color their faces. We all have interesting cultures. Usually, if you wrap something in complete restraint, what you find is it shrinks and it dies. Every time the devil tries to wrap up the church in some new form of oppression, it multiplies. In the book of Acts, in the fourth chapter and fourth verse, we find out that the Sanhedrin has imprisoned two of the apostles. The resulting action, the church shrinks and begins to wither in cowardice. Is that what it says? No, we didn't turn there, and yet you know that that's not what it says. It says, and the church grew in number daily. Not just in Acts 4, but in Acts 5. God Himself strikes two people dead for sinning in the church. And so, of course, the church with this setback shrank back, began to decline in number, and not only that... But of course, the membership roles faded because who wants to be in a church where you could be struck dead, right? Except the next verse says, and they grew in number and in favor with the Lord, and many were added to the church. And then in Acts 6, following the persecutions in Acts 5, where people were actually beaten for the gospel, you would think, surely, surely this kind of oppression would stifle the growth of the church. But in Acts 6.1, we find out that it grew daily. It looks to me like persecution is the fertilizer for the soil of revival in the church. How frustrating it must be to be an enemy of God. The people multiply and there's nothing that we can do about it. The people respond to pressure by increasing in density. One of the ways to get a bone to grow is to walk on it and to put pressure on it. Miss Suzanne's just had a knee replacement. One of the most healthy things that she can do is actually get up and walk on it. That ambulatory motion in the bone creates actual bone growth and healing. Bones respond to pressure by creating more bone. In fact, 
if you work at it really hard, martial artists are able to increase their bone density to the point they seem to be able to do extraordinary things. The church of the living God is the same way. The harder the enemy tries to oppress us, if we simply say no, we grow in number, density. We grow in strength. We grow in hardness towards his schemes and are able to do extraordinary things. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and I had to change my name to Pupu Thibodeau. <laughs> Their names are actually beautiful in Hebrew. Sometime I'll teach on that. The king says to two Hebrew midwives, how interesting, he must have forgotten who he's talking to. Has the devil ever spoken to you in such a way that made you think he thinks you have a relationship? He said, you know, Casey, what you really should do is, every once in a while we need to stop and say, hey, do you forget? Your name is opposition. We are not friends. I am not open to your suggestion. Listen to this wording. No. I one time told the gentleman something at work, and he said, I don't work for you. You're not my boss. I was appalled at his arrogance until I realized he was right. And I, in fact, didn't have the right to tell him what to do, and he was offended at my suggestion. Sometimes, saints, we need to show a little spiritual audacity. Who is the devil to you? A foreign king who is on his way out. He is a lame duck. Devoid of power unless you submit to his authority. Then the king of Egypt said to two Hebrew midwives, he picked the wrong ladies, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth, and observe them on their delivery stool. If it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Good news for Emmy. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do. If you write in your Bible, take out a pen, we find a secret, magical formula that somebody in a certain denomination, could write down and sell books. They did not do. In other words, they said no. Now, there are a lot of ways to say no, saints. I picked a very unwise one. As a teenager in my father's house, I looked the man in the eye and said no. Perhaps a more subtle and shrewd way would have simply been to not do. See, if you tell your teenage son, I want you to pick up the trash, and he looks at you and smiles but walks past it, that's just another way to say no, is it not? I'm not suggesting that you have long, warm conversations holding hands with the devil and walking, feeling warm and fuzzy on a beach. I'm not suggesting that you have to address him or call him names or in any way interact with him. I'm suggesting that you say no with your actions because you will not do it. The midwives, however, feared. The midwives, however, feared. Maybe that's our problem. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. I want you to think for a second how interesting this is. 
There's been an evil edict that goes out into the land. A satanic command. Kill all the boys. This is in direct opposition to what God has said. Fill the earth. Subdue it. He says, kill all the kids. At the very moment that Pharaoh... At the very moment that Pharaoh is planning the extermination of God's people... Preparing for their deliverance. Come on, saints, that's worth meditating on. At the very moment that this man thinks he is killing all of God's people, God is bringing into the world somebody who will crush his head and deliver the people. At the moment the devil thinks he's got us down and is going to wipe us out, if two women just said no, God's deliverance is born. Did it take a nation obedient? Did it take a, a warrior, a general, somebody who throw a javelin? It took two women who simply did not do what the wicked man said to do. God is not hemmed in by our lack of strength. God is not hemmed in by our lack of ability. God is only hemmed in when we do what the enemy wants us to do and not what God wants us to do. The cure for your oppression is submission to God. Normally, your submission to God does not require you to participate in civil disobedience. But occasionally, it does. In Acts, the fifth chapter and the 29th verse, these men who are commanded to no longer teach in that name, don't you say that name anymore, had one response. Judge for yourself whether it is right for me to obey you rather than God. This is what was in the hearts of the Hebrew midwives. King, you may be an authority over us. You may be able to throw us to our deaths. But judge for yourself whether it's right that we should obey you rather than God. I don't want anybody in here to break laws. I don't want kids to disobey their parents. I don't want husbands to be or wives to be in rebellion to their husbands. Unless, of course, yeah, Casey liked that. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're being asked in some way to be disobedient to God. And then you know what you do? You don't have to speak. You don't have to be ugly. You simply did not do. Boy, what a magical answer. What a magical phrase that we find in the book of Exodus. They simply did not do. About that. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? We've let the boys live. Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women. Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. The women of God have never been pansies. Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arise. Do you think that they're just lying? I mean, you could consider some other biblical text and maybe think that they stretched the truth in an act of trust for God like Rahab did. I kind of think they're telling the truth. 
I think maybe they were deliberately slow in getting there, and the Hebrew women were extraordinary. It seems that our children live, even though there is a death sentence, because they're born of a promise of God and not just of some ordinary means. You see, what made these women give birth to children before somebody could put them to death? There's a reigning death sentence. What made the children live through the death sentence is they are the result of a promise. A promise that said, I am going to give your descendants all of this land. That promise cannot rest until the descendants have the land. Well, what does this have to do with a baby dedication? I promise we're getting there. Emmy is not born in an ordinary way. She's not the child of a slave. Galatians 4.23 says we are not born of a slave woman in the ordinary way. We're born of a free woman under supernatural circumstances. Emmy is not the child of a slave. So she will learn, she will learn all of her life what it is to say no to the oppressor and learn to submit to the King of Kings so that God can do extraordinary things through the life of one obedient woman in the same way that He did Shifra or Pua. Hmm. I love the rest of this story. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased, imagine that, and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Psalm 68, 4-10 speaks of our God looking and seeing the lonely and setting them in families and in short, fulfilling their heart's desires. Why do you think that the Bible points out that Shifra and Pua received families of their own. And isn't it presented... I mean, could you read this? Could you read this with a modern slant on families? Could you read this and say, and then Shifra and Pua were saddled with kids of their own. I mean, and then Shifra and Pua had to give up their career and just go be an old housewife. And then Shifra and Pua got absorbed into some man's name and lost their identity. And then Shifra and Pua burned their braziers. I just thought that might make you laugh. Reason to say that. Hebrew women didn't wear them. You can't read this. You cannot read this as a bad thing. In fact, God is rewarding them with families. So let me ask you, why? Do you honestly think these were the only two women in Israel that didn't have families of their own? Why were these two rewarded? Because they would not bow their knee to the oppressor. And God knew if He trusted them with families, they would raise up families that would not bow their knee to the oppressor. I've often wondered why God would give a crack addict a child. When there could be a couple sitting next to you that is struggling to have one. All I can tell you is that He's an amazing God. And that he will take children that seem to have been born into captivity with death sentences and raise up deliverers. And he will see people's hearts 
and see that they will not bow their knee, but that they will persist in trusting Him regardless of the cost and freely give them families. And He's God. He has the right to do it. But any way you look at it, babies are blessings. They're part of God's command upon the earth. I think maybe we should go to Exodus 2. Is that fair enough? These women receive families of their own because they had proven faithful over what they had already been entrusted with. One of the neat things is it didn't require them to do anything. It just required them to not do something they were told to. Saints, can you appreciate that if you're waiting on a promise from God, I just want to throw this in before I move on. Can you appreciate that if you're waiting on a promise from God, you would rather have something to do than be told not to do something? Yeah, a few of you are shaking your head, and I think you get it, and others probably hadn't meditated on it enough. I think it's probably the hardest thing in the world to ask Shifra and Pua not to go subvert the monarchy, not to go make war, but simply don't do what they said to do. It is the hardest for us to wait in omission rather than go out and drive forward in commission. Do you understand what I mean? But many times for God's promises to happen, the ultimate display of trust is not that you climb the mountain for God, but that you sit in the shade right where He told you to sit until the sun shines. Can you say amen to that? Is there anybody in here that ministers to? Anybody at all? Okay, Exodus 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. (laughs) Uh, Who was Jesus' parents? Mary Christ and Joseph Christ, right? Do you ever shudder when somebody, you you say, hey, who is Jesus' dad? And somebody says, Joseph. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? I mean, because it is Joseph, but it's not Joseph, right? And uh, the Bible goes out of the way to say that that Jesus' father was was God, right? I mean, we're all on the same page there. You don't have to do that with Moses. It's just a Levite man and a Levite woman. Isn't it interesting that you're introducing the deliverer of a nation and his parents' name are not even mentioned? They're not mentioned for several more chapters. Why would that be? Oh, every parent out there ought to be able to relate to this. When you have children, your life's no longer about you. (laughs) Come on, mamas, trying to worship in here with your babies crying. Your life is no longer about you. Everything that you do is for the benefit of that child. Your life comes back to you somewhere around, I don't know, 18, 20, maybe if you're American, 32 years later. (laughs) Their names are not even mentioned. We're going to tell the story of God's great deliverance. And it's a, a Levite man and woman. Well, are they unimportant? They're certainly not unimportant. But being a parent is a selfless act. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son when she saw that he was a fine child. Good thing mamas are not supposed to think their babies are ugly. When she saw that he was a fine child. Don't you love the NIV? This word is really beautiful. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful, extraordinary, uh, a striking... So that when Stephen's commenting on it in the New Testament in the book of Acts, he says, 
saw that this was no ordinary child. In other words, he's not common or homely. He's fine. That was our word. When I was in junior high, if a girl was good looking, she was fine. Nothing wrong with her. Jim left. Okay. We saw that she was, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Like, well, what on earth could that be in there for? The women are supposed to immediately take their children and they uh, are supposed to pitch them in the Nile, as Exodus one twenty two said said to do that. Uh, what would be interesting at all about trying to hide a, a newborn? I don't know how long it's been since you had to keep a baby, but they're not quiet very often. And if they're silent, they put off these aromas. And if they're not putting off aroma and they're not crying, it's only because they're eating or sleeping. And occasionally, a talented child can do all of those things at the same time. I had talented children. To hide a baby in these circumstances for three months meant that every moment of every day, that mother and father are trusting that their lives are not going to end because this baby is discovered. In fact, Hebrews 11.23 puts them in the Faith Hall of Fame for this reason. But it doesn't name them. (laughs) How about that? The faithful need to work without recognition, parents. How about this? But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch, just like Noah did the ark. Then she placed the child in it and put him among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. What would this be like? Most parents find it hard to give up control in their children's lives. How about, in fact, some of you that are not parents, when we think about this, just think about it as your most precious pearl. Whatever your dream is, whatever your hopes for life and for your future are. She walks out and sets this baby in a little boat, a little ark, and pushes it out into the Nile. Now, I don't know if you watch those shows my son watches, but I thought alligators in South Louisiana were big. I got these things that they call Nile crocodiles that are as big as my truck. I mean, it's insane. How hard would that be? But I want to tell you something. Very often, God requires of His parent, of His people that they be in positions where they don't need anybody to know their name. That they be in positions where they are willing to give up any sense of control over their future, their dreams, and their destiny. They quite literally just let it float into God's will. Jesus crossed this place when He prays, Not my will, but your will be done realizing that that would probably mean his death. We cross that place every time you step into whatever is the unknown in your life for God. And it's required. Because God has a plan that you don't understand yet. While Pharaoh is trying to exterminate you, God is raising up people 
who either will or will not do God's will so that He can deliver you. She thought she was giving her child away. Let us keep reading. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. A mother's willingness to trust God put into motion something that only God could work out. If you were going to save an entire nation, you wouldn't use the obedience of two Hebrew midwives to do it. If you were going to save an entire nation, you wouldn't put the deliverer in the Nile infested with crocodiles. But we serve a God who allows us to get into great trouble so that we can see great deliverance. He allows us to need great deliverance so that we can see a great deliverer. What was God's method of salvation here? How is it that God reveals the deliverer? Through the tears of a baby and a princess of Egypt's maternal instinct. She's an Egyptian. What's she supposed to do with the baby? Let it die. But that baby cried, and that mama's heart broke, and she didn't want the baby to die. The world begins to change when people who are born of Egypt begin to care about the people of God. That baby's tears are beginning to change the world. He had a need, and she had a desire, a God-given desire to meet that need. And in obedience, something happens. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, this little Miriam running around, asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? The humble preaching of a little Hebrew girl now has just elevated a slave's baby to become a prince in Egypt. In Acts 7, the Bible teaches us that he was educated in all the ways of Egypt. Josephus tells us that he was put in charge of an Ethiopian campaign and Moses completely conquered the Ethiopians for Egypt. Jewish literature says, that the baby was taken after his mother weans him, which we'll get to in a minute, to Janes and Jamborees, who were the wise men of Egypt, incidentally, who Moses would later face down, and taught all the ways of mathematics and language and astronomy and military strategy so that he was one of the more learned men in all of the world. Isn't it amazing that at times by giving up a little bit of our dream and putting it in God's hands, He can accomplish more than you were ever capable of doing? These are all things that Moses' nameless parents could never have done for Moses. I want you to think about their faith for a moment before I get any further, though. Moses' mama's name is Yachbeb. If you watch the old Cecil DeMille movie, I don't know why, they got it wrong. They named her Yoshebel, but it's not Yoshebel, it's Yachbeb. 
On the eighth day, what happens to Hebrew babies? They're circumcised. On the eighth day, they're circumcised and they're given a name. How about that? Uh, Moses was in her arms for three months. So Moses was certainly circumcised. And Moses was certainly named. And yet, what are we going to read next? Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go. She answered. The girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Paid to play. She's doing the very thing that she loves most. Except now, she's being paid for it. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moshe, saying, I drew him out of the water. Most biblical commentators say that the she there does not refer to Yachbed, but the princess of Egypt. She had the baby for three months. She had to let it loose. And somebody else gets to name them. How hard would that be? Can you imagine how difficult that would be? By the way, Moshi is a strange word. Moshi, in the Egyptian tongue, seems to mean brought forth like a son. With the help of God, I brought forth a son. While in the Hebrew tongue, it means to draw specifically out of water. So when an Egyptian looked at Moshi, he just saw a son who had been brought forth. But when a Hebrew looked at Moshi... He saw, saw somebody who was brought forth out of the deep waters. Second Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 speak of Jesus being in the deep waters of death with turrets swirling around Him and God drawing Him out of the waters that are death. Guess what that word is? You guessed it. Moshi. See, we never know. When Matthew and Cassidy submit in a few moments to put their baby before the Lord, to dedicate that baby before the Lord, we have no idea in what ways God will choose to educate and prepare Amy for her future. But what we know is that if we submit our will to His will, He will do more for her than we ever could. And it may even be in those experiences that she finds her real name or her function in the kingdom. Very common for mamas and daddies to say, I want my son, I want my daughter to be a doctor or a lawyer or a veterinarian or a whatever. That's really grossly unimportant. The real question is, what does God desire from my baby? And our job is to be willing to let go of enough control to see God work in their lives and to maintain enough control that the children don't stray from God's commands. What a difficult job. And for all of this, the thanks that Matthew and Cassidy will get is one day nobody will even know their names. Little Emmy will be married to somebody. Emmy will have kids. And Matt won't be Matthew Piro. And Cassidy will not be Cassidy Piro anymore. They'll be somebody's dad or mom. They'll be somebody's grandpa, grandma. Nameless, selfless servant who did the work of God well. And the proof is that you're here. I love our God. 
Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mama. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you to play. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moshe, saying, I drew him out of the water. Hebrew women were a little different in these days. Isaac's mama nursed him till five. We know that because the chronologies are given in the Bible. I don't know how long Yachbeh got to nurse Moses, but I bet she cherished every moment. And I bet that she was not only nourishing that young man in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Let me tell you why. The Hebrew children by the age five very often could recite the entire law of God. So if she taught him, he didn't just go to Pharaoh's household to be educated in all the ways of Egypt. He already had the seeds that were the words of God that he would later deliver to his whole nation. I don't know how long I'll get with my babies. I don't know how long you'll get with yours. But I know this. Every moment we need to nourish them. We will find our provision in God's kingdom when we are doing what He said. Letting go when he says let go. Grabbing hold when he says grab a hold. You'll get paid for doing what God has called you to do because he wants his work done. And ultimately something happens. When every husband and wife do their job, when every friend of the family, when every aunt, when every uncle does their job and we raise up a generation of righteousness, what happens is God's people get delivered and the whole world begins to change. If Shifra and Pua, if Yachbed and Amram, if Miriam, if any of these people, if the princess in Egypt had not done what they did, you wouldn't have the basis for your legal system. You wouldn't have a government. You wouldn't have a Bible. You wouldn't have any of the wonderful things that either Judaism or Christianity have contributed to life. Do you think that they had any idea what was on the line with their obedience? We need to consider that next time the devil wants us to do something and we say no. We need to consider it the next time God wants us to do something and we will say yes. I think at this point what we ought to do is take this mother and father up here that have said no to the devil and yes to God. I think... We will dedicate this baby. And as a church, we will all pledge to help her learn to say no to the devil and yes to God. And then we will pray with all of our heart that Matt and Cass are paid to play. Last and Cheryl, would you all come up here? Now, church, you guys know we usually have certificates, which you'll still get. We still we usually have about a 40-slide teaching that starts in Genesis that moves through the whole Bible. But you've got to forgive me. This is the fourth Piro baby we've dedicated. It's a little bit like renewing your vows four times in one year. It's only so often that I can put them behind the eight ball like that. Patricia, come up here. 
See, I told you I'm learning as a preacher still every day. They already understand their obligation. I used to start these with the proverb that says that it is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vows. The reason we're not starting this in that way is they're already trapped. They got four. <laughs> they know what they're doing and they love it. Not really. Papa, yes, they do. Papa Les has threatened to take out his whetstone and sharpen his knife. Y'all don't get that? No. To fix Matthew. But I want you to understand, Matthew and Cassidy, they're not making mistakes. These are not oops. These are babies that were prayed for, that are wanted, because they're going to change the world. Amen? Amen? Y'all stand to your feet, stretch out your hands. Do it. Say something. It's in line with what you're saying. Everyone I've talked to tells them that my daughter and Matthew had a poor child. Yeah. You get the reaction. Are they crazy? Are they insane? And, and in line with, with what you were saying, the vision I have of this family and what they're thinking about are totally opposite things. Amen. Uh, the blessing of the family and they're thinking of the burden of the family the way you say. You, you know what I think about as a selfish young pastor who's often stubborn and all of those things? I think one more chance to marry into the Piros. <laughs> Yeah, first come through me. It, it, like a multiple choice question now. You've got four, maybe five possibilities. Let's pray for this baby. You want to pray for the baby? Yeah. All right. Mighty God, we thank you for Emmy Hero. Lord God, with your help and your anointing, we anoint her little feet. Mighty God, we anoint her little head, her little hands. And mighty God, we pray and bless her. Holy, holy one, we pray that you would take this little girl, mighty one, that she would grow in your presence, grow in your power all the days of her life. Lord, we pray that her feet would touch foreign and domestic soils, that her hands, mighty God, would see healing, and that her little mouth would utter the very words of God that they would prophesy. We pray that she be healthy, and strong all the days of her life. No, we pray that she be as strong spiritually as she will be physically. That she be as healthy spiritually as that she is physically. Lord, we confess that your babies are beautiful. And Lord God, we thank you for their beautiful future. Help us to raise them in the way that they should go. Lord, as we touch Matthew and Cassidy and the church stretches towards them, we pray that you would endow them with wisdom from on high to know the good that they should do. Holy One, we thank You for the little love that is so sweet. In the name of Jesus, we dedicate to the Lord, Emmy Angel Piro. Amen. Amen. With the next one, we'll know how to do this. I'm getting more...